This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 8, Reynoldstown. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, thanks for joining me this week. Today I'm coming to you live from a closet. I'm not kidding. I think I'm going to start a little series on where I record my podcast. Um, I was home trying to do it, and my laptop was acting up, so I had to come to my boyfriend's house, and the least echoey room happens to be his closet. So, really, I mean, I think I'm actually going to take a video of this one for you guys, because it's really funny. So if I sound a little weird, too, this week, that's why. Today, I want to tell you guys about Reynolds Town, and if you've never been, or you don't know where it is, I'm going to orient ourselves a little bit. I'm sure everybody knows the Krog Tunnel, and if you didn't, you probably know it now because the east side of Beltline Extension now takes you from Krog Market through the Krog Tunnel and then continuing on through Reynoldstown. Now, if you're in a car, and I'm going to use a car just because it makes it easier to explain, and you drive through the tunnel, when you come back out into the daylight, you're going to hit a stop sign. Now, if you go right, that takes you to Cabbage Town, which will have its own episode one day, but if you turn left, it's going to take you to Reynoldstown. And I don't think many people were turning left until that Beltline extension, because now, really, that's the way that it forces you to go. And I will admit that I'm one of those people that never turned left either. I had been to Cabbage Town a few times, but I did not discover Reynolds Town until less than two years ago. Robin and I were researching and writing our civil rights bike tour for Bicycle Tours of Atlanta, and I remember it was uh, during the week after work. It was that beautiful twilight hour. We took the bikes out, and we were kind of tracing the route, and when I first got into Reynoldstown, I was immediately intrigued and in love, and I just wanted to know as much about this place as possible. Once I started learning the stories that Reynoldstown had to tell, I realized how important they were to share. If you've been living under a rock, Atlanta has been changing at rapid speeds. Neighborhoods, homes, streets, they all have something to say. But as those homes are torn down and then the landscapes are changing, the history normally goes with it. So as I hope I can express to you guys today, the story of Reynoldstown is important, and yet it's changed so much in the last few years that I really worry about the stories that it had to tell. So today, I'm sharing them with you, again with the hopes that you can share them with others. When you cross from Edgewood Avenue through the Krog Tunnel, you're passing underneath railroad tracks. Above your head is a mile-long CSX rail yard, and in virtually every city across America, the other side of the tracks is usually the undesirable place. It's where the working class live, the poor, the minorities, and these tracks in Atlanta were no different. Down the hill, there was Cabbage Town, which was a secluded mill town filled with rural, poor, white factory workers, men, women, children, working 60 to 70 hours a week for very little pay. And then up the hill, you had Reynoldstown, which was a community founded by newly freed slaves working on the railroads, also for very little pay. As always in Atlanta, the story begins with the Civil War. The Battle of Atlanta, which was in 1864, was fought over all of this land. So Reynoldstown had the advantage of being along the rail line, but it also was a high spot in the city. So before it really became a a town or a neighborhood, it was just land that the war was fought over. And actually, many of the neighborhood street names are named for generals. Confederate generals, of course, but there is that connection, and there are some historical markers through the neighborhood as well. Just six years after the war ends, Atlanta's population is at 21,000 people, 
and almost half of them were African-American. So you have to think of who died in the Civil War, and it's pretty much every able-bodied white man in the South from 18 to 45 years old. So there's a huge vacuum in Atlanta for labor and manpower. Basically, we have to rebuild the city, and then we need people to do it. Newly freed Southern Blacks came to Atlanta to fill that. So when emancipation first passed, um, a lot of people stayed to become sharecroppers. But by the 1890s, that was over. Lynching in the South was at an all-time high. And then the bull weevil was ruining crops. So you had falling crop prices. And that was really the time that everybody left the rural areas um, to go to cities. And Atlanta was a new burgeoning place to be. Almost all of the railroads in Atlanta were destroyed by Union soldiers, and the rebuilding of this railroad was the very first thing we had to do to get the city back on track. Now, this provided work for thousands of newly freed slaves. Most of them were hired to lay down the track, but some of them were also maybe mechanics or worked in the roundhouse as well. By the 1860s, it was these families that settled Reynolds Town. Now, the neighborhood today encompasses far more than the early layout and what I'm talking about right now. At its inception, Reynoldstown was really four streets, Chester, Selman, Kenyon, and Wiley. For those that are directionally handicapped, by the way, I'm the president of that club because I can get lost in a paper bag. Once you turn left out of the Krog Tunnel, that's Wiley Street. So that is running parallel to the Atlanta Beltline. Then the second, third, and fourth streets on your right are Chester, Selman, and Kenyon, respectively. This small portion of Reynoldstown was the entire neighborhood in the 1860s. And all of these early streets are in that bird's eye aerial that I know I've mentioned before and I always talk about it, but I'm going to include a picture so you guys can get an idea of what that early neighborhood looked like. That being said, the homes that are in this section are the oldest. They start really around the 1880s. And people were primarily coming to Reynoldstown because of railroad work that was particularly done by black men. Sort of like the barber trade was specifically only done by black men, um, rail work in Atlanta followed the same lines. And the rail yard that was along Wiley Street was called Hulsey Yard. So it was a source of employment for the entire neighborhood. Sometimes when I'm there, I try to go back in time and picture it. So the sun is coming up, men grabbing their lunches, kissing their wife goodbye, and then walking up the street to go to work. The people that worked in the rail yard were called Hulsey Helpers. And like I said, they did the rails, but there also was a big roundhouse as well where they would work. Now, the women at that time, black women at that time in the city, were almost all domestic laborers. And the good part is that in 1890, when Inman Park was created, they were able to just walk a short distance to go to work. They would leave Reynoldstown, cross the tracks, and then work in wealthy white homes in Inman Park. You have to remember that in the 1860s and 70s, this was not Atlanta yet. This was just a small settlement on the outskirts of town, a whole half-hour walk away, and the roads were unpaved for years. So the million-dollar question, why do we call it Reynoldstown? And the general consensus is that it was named for two of the earliest settlers, Sarah and Madison Reynolds, who were from Covington, and they brought the two of them and their seven children over in 1866. Madison was a landowner, and legend has it that he ran a store on Wiley. I wish there was more about them because I'm very fascinated by the story, but it's just one of those things that it's very hard to find information. Things started to really change in the neighborhood in the 1880s. Now let me know if the following story sounds at all familiar, just a little bit like something we have going on today. 
By the 1880s, the horse-drawn trolley system in Atlanta extended through the neighborhood, shortening that long half-hour walk to the city and making it a much more desirable place to live for white people. Middle-class families began to flock to the area, and starting in 1905 and continuing for well over two decades, the district east of this small little area would be developed as a series of seven small subdivisions for white families. Now, the first of these was a 100-acre lot purchased and developed by Asa Candler. Asa Candler sounds familiar. It's the man that brought Coca-Cola to the national stage mayor of Atlanta, and also Inman Park resident, so he lived on the other side of the tracks. So all of this development is happening east of Flat Shoals Road, and Flat Shoals is, um, to give you an idea, when you're taking that new belt line through Reynolds Town, it crosses the street, and then when you cross the street, Flat Shoals is the road that is parallel to you. So it's a road that kind of bisects the neighborhood, and east of there is where these new neighborhoods were being built. At the same time of this new development, the son of Sarah and Madison, his name was I.P., I.P. Reynolds was following in his father's footsteps. He grew up in Reynoldstown, he graduated from Clark University, and he inherited his parents' wealth. He was editor of the Atlanta Independent, which was the city's first newspaper for the black community, and he even wrote a column in that newspaper, but then also in the Atlanta Daily World, which was the nation's first black daily newspaper. And the column was called Sam of Auburn Avenue. So uh, apparently he just detailed the life and daily comings and goings of Auburn Avenue. In 1906, IP was the first black man in the area to build a two-story commercial structure, which operated as an all-purpose store. Crazy enough is that this building is still here today. I know that's very shocking for for Atlanta. Now, the CSX fence even goes around the outline of the building, which I love. The address is 912 Wiley Street, but it's right on the Beltline. So if you do take the Beltline out of the Krog Tunnel and you follow it up the hill, you just take a look to your left. There is a brick two-story structure, and you can see the outline. Even though it's not a store now, I think people live upstairs, but it still has the outline of a store. In the same year that IP built that store, Atlanta had a huge race riot. And I know that I keep talking about the race riot and not explaining it, but I promise you that a dedicated episode is coming up very soon. The implications of the riot were felt throughout the city, but in Reynoldstown particularly, what it did was it confined all African-American residents to that four-street original section. If unofficial confinement wasn't enough, the city council of Atlanta would go on to pass racial segregation ordinances in 1913 and 1917, and although those were ruled unconstitutional, the state of Georgia would pass its own segregated zoning in 1928. All of that to say that the black residents of Reynoldstown were not able to spread into that newer development that I talked about earlier past Fletchell's Road. By 1922, the white school children of Reynoldstown got a beautiful new school. They named it John F. Faith Grammar School, named after a very well-known citizen and Atlanta pioneer and Confederate veteran. And in 1963, the school was changed to Huber Elementary. Most recently, it was called Atlanta Tech High, so maybe one of those ring a bell for you guys. The building is gorgeous. It's still there as well, and that's a really great thing because it's one of the best remaining examples of Atlanta's earliest 20th century school buildings. The exciting part also is that it was just leased by Wonder Root, which was a local arts organization. So not only is the building still there, but it has new life in it, so it's not just sitting there vacant. 
Racial separation in Reynoldstown only got worse after World War II, and it became one of the first Atlanta neighborhoods to be affected by white flight. Now, we can do the white flight topic for the next few hours, so I don't want to get too far into that, but I want to point out one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize. And I used to think the same way. I think white flight is, oh, okay, all of the white residents left for the suburbs and the black residents stayed in the city. But at that time in America, everybody wanted to move to the suburbs. The United States was doing an amazing job promoting the suburbs as utopia, right? This wonderful life for your kids and wide open spaces and no pollution. So everybody wanted to move to the suburbs. The thing was that black returning World War II veterans were not allowed access to VA loans. And so VA loans was a lot of the reason that we had this white flight to the suburbs. So again, a very complicated topic, but I do want to explain that it was not so much of an option to stay in the city. It was a lack of opportunity to get out. During the next 15 years, Reynoldstown would go from an integrated neighborhood to an all-African-American community by about 1960. Now think about this, an African-American community in Reynoldstown, a place that was settled by newly freed slaves, did not get their own school for black children until 1960. So almost a hundred years later. And the only reason they got this school is because they had a strong community group, neighborhood community group, that really fought for it to be built. They named the school after local leader I.P. Reynolds, and it is also still there. I love Reynoldstown because it has so much stuff still there. So it's tucked kind of deep into the neighborhood, but it is currently a community center. And it's not as impressive, if you want to say that, as the John P. Faith Elementary. So that building is huge and very beautiful architecturally. The I.P. Reynolds Elementary was done in the international style. So that was a very mid-century, simple, um, modern almost style. I'm not doing justice to the architecture terms here, but you'll see when you look at it, it is very, very different from the first school. Now, there are a few other unique structures in the neighborhood that I couldn't exactly fit in chronological order, but I want to give you a little bit of information if you do go exploring. So the first is Ormwood Depot, and it's at 904 Memorial Drive. In 1900, the A and WP Railroad built a new freight depot on this spot to serve the neighboring industries. Now, the first structure was wood frame, so it did not last. But in 1930, they replaced the present building, which is now a restaurant called Muchacho. Um, Now, I got to share this kind of preservation drama. Sometimes I forget that I live in this history nerd world and not everybody else does. But if anybody remembers this, um, this brick building survived, you know, almost 100 years with its original brick, and when this redeveloper purchased it and it became a restaurant, they painted it white. The preservation community lost their collective minds. Uh, Painting brick, I won't get too much into it, but it's a really bad thing to do, and there was um, outrage about it and lots of social media comments, and the restaurant owner just kind of did it anyway. So, I have not been to that place, and I don't plan to. I think it's my own internal little preservation protest, if you want to call it that. Um, But yeah, I, I realize that nobody else understands this or cares. Around the same time as that newer Ormord station is being built, just a block away, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company has a warehouse and bakery that they built. If that long name sounds weird, you might know it by its shortened named A&P. The A&P grocery store, this building served as the supermarket's southeastern headquarters from, they built it, I think, in 1930 until 
1963. Now, there was a bakery in there, and the bakery stayed open into the 70s, and the story is that the residents of Reynolds Town love smelling fresh baked bread every morning. Now they are very expensive lofts, and I think I'm going to put one of those on my Christmas list for Santa this year. From the Beltline, right after you get through the tunnel, there's a church at the corner of Wiley and Selman that was originally built as the St. Philip's African Methodist Episcopal in the late 20s. What I love about this church is that the oral history says that the church was constructed entirely of Stone Mountain granite, and the parishioners took their mule carts up to Stone Mountain, quarried their own granite, and then hauled it back. And I don't know how much of that story I want to believe, but I still think it's awesome. <laughs> so like, whether it's partly true or all of it's true or none of it is true, I just think it's amazing visual to have people bringing up their own carts, quarrying the rock themselves, and then bringing it back down to Atlanta. Now, if you didn't catch my drift before, Reynolds Town is rapidly becoming a gentrified neighborhood today. There's a lot of new housing being built, and instead of taking existing housing, it's just tearing it down, and then building those, I call them the modern cubes, but kind of those square glass houses. I'm not the biggest fan, and I'm trying not to be a hater, but the houses, they don't fit the scale of the neighborhood, the character of the neighborhood. They don't really go with the historic houses maybe next door to them, and the reason that this is important to me is because if this keeps happening in 10 more years, when you ride your bike through Reynolds Town or walk or drive your car, the Reynolds Town of the past is gone. So all you're going to see is modern cube, modern cube, modern cube, and there is no more connection to the past. Those stories are gone. That's the story of Reynolds Town. If it sounds intriguing to you, Make sure you visit soon, because like I said, the neighborhood changes almost daily. And the first weekend in November is the annual um, Chomp and Stomp in Cabbage Town, which, if you didn't know, is a chili cook-off and a bluegrass festival. So it's the perfect time. You go a little early, you walk around Reynoldstown, and you walk over to Cabbage Town and get some food. But remember, if you do this and you take some photos, share them with me, because it's the highlight of my week to see them. I love hearing about you guys exploring something new, or maybe you've always been through that same area, but you've never paid attention to these things. As always, share these stories with your friends, family, or strangers because it's really up to the people of Atlanta to keep some of these memories of these neighborhoods alive. If you're enjoying Archive Atlanta, please subscribe, write a review, or share it with someone who might enjoy it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>